Hello and welcome to The Found Cause, where we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right, your left is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Actually, you might actually be on there right now, whatever. Uh, and then across the airwaves, it's... Theodore, under the PC, under the person of Christ. And yeah, the, the recording software always flips us. Um, hello, gentlemen. It's been a little bit, actually, since all three of us were on. How are you guys? Doing great. Splendid. Spent Labor Day laboring, I hope? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not very in the spirit of the holiday. Wow. I was thinking about not working. How about that? Oh, so thinking. work was in my mind mm. and not doing it. Yeah. I was cutting bathroom tile. Were you doing anything labory, Theodore? I was trying to sell a car. <laughs> okay, sell a car. Oh. That's that's a labor right there. Worth commission, actually. I actually sold it today. Oh, congrats. Nice. Yeah, thanks. Well, anyways, sorry for the for the buffer, gentlemen. We are talking about kind of an, uh, one of our weird titles. We are Our videos must go back into the niche the niche weird categories because we got like 30 views in the last two videos which just tells me that we're um hitting those those niche people um so we're gonna we're gonna keep on the niche train instead of like harping on um oh my gosh president biden said what um we're gonna jump on more obscurity and that is the failure of idolizing institutions in religion so whether it's in roman catholicism mormonism jehovah's witnesses uh, seventh-day adventists southern baptists mega churches Anytime that the church or people, individuals, idolize an institution over God or put them on par with God, whatever, it's, it's an idolatry. The sin central to that is idolatry, and it fails. And when it fails, it ends up destroying the church and the participant all the more. So that's kind of the general theme of today is the idolatry of institutions. And so we want to give two examples with Roman Catholicism, with Mormonism, um, but first, let's discuss kind of the general pathway of why idolizing institutions is bad. Sure. <clears throat> sure. In history, you can see that if you're looking to specifically the leader of whatever institution, whichever denomination you are keeping in mind, you can know you can see that people contradict each other all the time. I'm thinking of Catholicism because I'll be covering that part later in the episode. Popes have said things that popes in the past would never have said. So how can you look forward to this infallible institution when its leader are saying completely opposite things from people in the past? You're going to see the same in Mormonism as well. What do you do? You're saying you should put your trust in this leader because this leader has the ear of God, you know, or like can speak to God or on God's behalf, whatever you, however you want to phrase that. And the leader ends up contradicting, saying false things, saying heresy according to what scripture has um, laid out for us. What do you do at that point? Right. And, and history is played out, even for those who aren't in cultic movements like Mormonism or in apostate churches like the Roman Catholic Church, um, there are still a temptation to idolize individuals, um, whether they're like superstar pastors like R.C. Sproul or Timothy Keller or um, even your local pastor. So somebody who's not particularly famous, but he's your local pastor. Uh, we do not want to put our trust in men, in a single man, in groups of men. While God promises that he will establish his church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that does not mean that individual members of the church won't fail. And there's no protection special on an elder versus a regular layman. Um, there's no promises in scripture about the integrity of a particular person in the church or that um, the authority given to men will not falter. In fact, we only see from the Bible the continued sinfulness of even saved creatures like us. 
And so we're still in the flesh. We still have sin. Same goes for our pastors. So when you see somebody that's a celebrity um, who who has a lot of trust, and, and generally you can trust people like R.C. Sproul, um, who has passed away now, so we can say like his, his full work is done, he still has flaws. And, and frankly, I've said this for a long time now, and so if you haven't heard it before, here it is. If you personally can't find something wrong, some, something you can disagree with, with a particular teacher, you're probably either you don't know them very well or you are idolizing them mm. because a teacher is it's going to have something you should disagree with. Otherwise, you like weirdly, weirdly are giving them too much authority over your life because teachers differ. R.C. Sproul differs from Jeff Durbin and Jeff Durbin differs from um Doug Wilson, and I don't know, I'm thinking of celebrity pastors here, but... John all, MacArthur, too. John MacArthur. They all differ from each other. Even if it's not on the core things, it is on something, right? And if you can't find that you disagree with somebody on anything, um, you are probably idolizing them. And again, I believe God intentionally... One of the tough things about God's sovereignty is that he intentionally leaves weaknesses in men, mm-hmm. whether it, he keeps a besetting sin in them. We all experience some sort of besetting sin, whether it's anger, jealousy, pride, lust, lies, whatever the sin is, you're not instantly made um, non-sinful when you come to Christ. And God clearly has this in his sovereign will because he allows it to happen. And so the same thing for pastors, he intentionally leaves weaknesses in elders, I think, so that A, he's glorified all the more because he's greater than these men who are weak, but also so that you are, so that you realize your mistake when you were tempted to idolize somebody like um, John Piper or whoever, you know, name your celebrity pastor or your local pastor, um, because John Piper has a lot of great things. God has blessed him with a lot of great wisdom and a lot of great influence, but he has huge faults in politics. Same with Tim Keller and, and Jeff Durbin and R.C. Sproul. Like everybody has issues, at least one issue, if not multiple issues. And so, um, Anyways, I just want to put that disclaimer out because we're going to be talking about totally fake churches. So it's easy to point and laugh and say, ha, 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 look at the Roman Catholics. Ha, 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 look at the, the Mormons um, and not realize that it also affects us in our day. Right. So we, I'll, I'll really pass the mic to Theodore for, to talk about Mormonism because, of course, Theodore is still talking with the local Mormons and juicing out um, the newest ranks of missionaries to come and talk with them. I commend him doing God's work there. It's a lot of work to constantly talk with new missionaries because they rotate them all these days. Um, but before we get into that, I want to set up a, a threefold uh, order of things that happens when you idolize institutions. So this threefold starts with one, you idolize the institution. Um, this is a really important first thing to, to ground when you're calling somebody out for idolizing an institution because the most common way of avoiding the accusation that you're idolizing an institution is to say, I'm not doing, I'm not idolizing the institution um, because we all know that idolatry is a sin. Mm-hmm. And so when you call out Roman Catholics or Mormons or your local Karen for idolizing the particular person, the first thing they do is say, I'm not idolizing them. So you need to construct, if they truly are idolizing that person, you need to show them, you need to prove them um, that they are idolizing the institution. So for Roman Catholicism, we go to their catechism, to their official teaching that, that says they idolize their institution and officiates it. Same with Mormon doctrine. And for somebody that's local, that's either idolizing R.C. Sproul or whoever, um, you want to point out that they, do you want to point out what I just talked about? That if, do you disagree with anything that R.C. Sproul has to say? If not, you, you're probably idolizing him, right? Um, do you get extremely angry if I question some of the beliefs of John MacArthur? You're 
probably idolizing him. If you aren't bringing it back to the Bible and instead you're going to this guy's particular sermon on the subject, um, you're probably idolizing him. We always mm. want to be coming back to the scriptures and people are only as good as they they are true to God's word. Um, so John MacArthur might have a really great sermon on dispensationalism, but if dispensationalism isn't from God's word, then we shouldn't we shouldn't believe it. So that's the step one. It's, mm-hmm. it's proving that they're idolizing something. And if somebody is truly idolizing something, you should be able to prove it. Two is that idol inevitably fails. It either will fail or it already has failed. And usually it's failed many, many, many times over. Um, proving that again to a person to bring them out of idolatry is usually pretty easy. It's a, the, the reason you get angry or you get passionate about somebody idolizing an institution is probably because the institution just failed, right? R.C. Sproul said something you just didn't like. The Roman Catholic Church just changed its position on the death penalty or um, the Mormon Church is preaching a totally false gospel, right? Like, well, so, Jehovah's Witnesses, when the end, when their end times prophecies happen, yep. hundreds of thousands left. Well, I don't know the exact number, but... A significant amount left right that group. So that's usually the, the easiest phase to identify is where they've gone wrong because men are failures so of course you're going to see failures of their man-made mm-hmm. institution uh, and the last step so we've got established that there's idolatry and usually they have established it themselves establish their failures show them their failures again usually pretty obvious the last step is um, if somebody doesn't leave idolatry they're going to make excuses which like doubles down on their sin so they either leave and repent and turn away from idolatry or they double down i'm i'm extra defending dispensationalism from john macarthur i'm extra defending uh roman catholic doctrines of papal infallibility i'm extra defending the the mormon church even though they just failed my test of an idol um like they've they've they aren't God, right? They, they did not live up to the godly standard I put them on. I'm still going to keep them up from the godly standard. This is equivalent to that whole Isaiah passage where the guy um, is carving wood. God mm. is talking about the, the man carving wood. One half he throws into the fire to warm himself. The other half he carves into a god and worships it. They've made a god out of this idol, and they know it's not a god. Like the man who's carving the wooden idol knows that this thing is just a carving that he has made. It's not worthy of worship, but he decides to worship it anyways. So the same way um, for our own man-made idols these days, Mormons look at the Mormon church and they go, I see that it has faults, but I'm going to keep it on its pedestal as infallible anyways. So it is, it is a complete and utter turning over of people to their sins. And so it's exactly what God describes in Isaiah about idolaters. And so this truly is idolatry i think idolatry is one of those sins that's tossed around a lot um and you could basically say that anything is idolatry like gluttony is idolatry lust is idolatry um you know any sin out of the sun is idolatry i'd like to keep it more specific um, but i do think that that putting an institution into the authority space that only god should fit is like true idolatry not just an expansion of the term i see interesting way of putting it so putting something in the place where only god should be Mm -hmm which isn't worship or authority or guidance. And it destroys institutions. So when an institution is made an idol, um, it should try its best to stop everybody from idolizing it because it will be destroyed from the inside out by people that idolize it because they will see its faults and then become delusional. And you don't want delusional people inside your institution. Um, Herod the Great, or Herod... Herod, not Herod the Great, um, Herod of Jesus' time, Herod, I'm forgetting his last name, um, 
whatever. The guy who judges Jesus and sends him to death or sends him back to Pilate, um, he is called a god, right, by the crowds in the Gospels, in, in Acts, and God strikes him dead, mm-hmm. right? If you are an institution that's being idolized and you don't stop them, you, you, you're incurring God's judgment. So that's our principle. Again, they, they establish themselves as an idol, they fail as an idol, and the idol, idolatry keeps going. Um, we're going to apply that framework to Mormonism first and then to Roman Catholicism later. So I've talked a ton. Theodore, mm-hmm. I'm going to hand the mic over to you. How does Mormonism fit into this, this threefold stage of idolatry? So, uh, just as the Catholics have the Pope, the Mormons have their prophet. Uh, they also call president, so president or prophet. And they stand on a pedestal uh, for everybody to listen to. And here's something that their own scripture says, and then I'll give you three quotes of presidents, president prophets of the Mormon church. So doctrine, uh, doctrine and covenants, which I might abbreviate DNC, uh, one verse 38 says, what I, the Lord have spoken, I have spoken and I excuse not myself. Though the heaven and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall be fulfilled. Either by mine own voice or or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. Servants being the prophets or presidents. Um, so President Wilford Woodruff, 189, in 1890, said, The Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray. It is not in the program. Um, and let's go 1945. President J. Reuben Clark Jr. counseled, You will never make a mistake by following the instructions and counsel of him who stands at the head as God's mouthpiece on earth. In 1972, President Joseph Fielding Smith, um, I think there is one thing which we should have exceedingly clear in our minds. Neither the president of the church, nor the first presidency, nor the united voice of the first presidency and the twelve will ever lead the saints astray or send forth counsel to the world that is contrary to the mind and the will of the Lord. Um, so that's just a bit basic exemplification of how um, the presidents and prophets are idolized mm-hmm. and almost infallible, even though a lot of Mormons will say, no, they're just human and they say wrong things and they don't always say the right thing. And oh, I don't think I have this quote, but Maybe I do somewhere. Um, yeah. Well, that's it's, something like the prophet is only prophesying when the Holy Spirit is working on them, or something yeah. like that. And so that's just one of those unverifiable, unfalsifiable claims that you never really know. Which is why, I presume, uh, Joseph Smith had that quoted of him from Rignan or somebody like that. Where he said, well, some revelations are of God, some are of man, some are of the devil. And he never really actually clarified how you distinguish them. Right. You just got to find out after the fact. Well, it is so crucial to establish their claim to authority and and show it to to Mormons or whoever you're witnessing to that has an idolized institution. Because like we talked about at the very top of the episode, we have witnessed on, on that episode where we had the three Mormon missionaries on, when David Alexander, the Mormon pastor was on um, when we talk to them on a free time when it's not televised right almost always infallibly um, the they they squirm away 
they they will talk about the great authority mm-hmm. and how great it is, how what peace of mind it is to have the Mormon Church over them, the LDS Church over them, deciding what's doctrine, showing them what's true in the Bible and how to correctly interpret um, the new scriptures. So they're all about passing the buck to the authority until we prove that the authority has a wrong think, you know, and, and they have had doctrines that they've overturned, and then they say, well. Uh, they aren't really that important, right? Like, they're just fallible men, which immediately contradicts itself, right? Are they authoritative, or or do you have to discern what they say when when they're speaking truth and when they're not? Because if you do that, if you have to discern when they're true and when they're not true, they're just like any other person. Like, they have no special authority. They've lost their special peace of mind because when they tell you what um, the Gospel of Matthew means, um, they could be totally wrong, right? And Therefore, you have no peace of mind um, about what Scripture truly means if you're looking to men to determine it for you. And let's use Scripture. Sorry. I was going to say, let's use Scripture as our standard Mm -hmm. here. What is that passage from Exodus? Is it Exodus 8? That, you know, if a prophet so much as says one wrong thing, he shall be put to death. Right. If a prophet claims to speak on behalf of Yahweh and says one thing that is incorrect, that doesn't come to pass, you shall... Put him to death right which invalidates even if his he does whole prophetic ministry mm-hmm. even even if he does say something true or some sort of prophecy or something but leads you after other gods do not be afraid of him do not follow him pay no attention and, uh, with what you were saying michael i thought it might as well bring up the bruce mcconkey mm-hmm. uh, thing right now yeah <laughs> where, do it. uh so regarding going back to scripture Um, so Bruce McConkie, a Mormon apostle on behalf of the quorum of the 12 wrote a letter to a man named Eugene England to correct him on doctrine. He said, quote, Joseph Smith so pointedly taught a prophet is not always a prophet. Prophets are men and they make mistakes. Sometimes they err in doctrine. This is one of the reasons the Lord has given us the standard works. They become the standards and rules that govern where doctrine and philosophy are concerned. If this were not so, we would believe one thing when one man was president of the church and another thing in the days of his successors. Truth is eternal and does not vary. Brigham Young contradicted Brigham Young. The answer is we will believe the expressions that accord with the teachings in the standard works, end quote. So that just points out how even a Mormon apostle points to sola scriptura or prima scriptura or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where scripture is the final foundation um, or authority of faith. Yeah. But even if then Mormons debate against that. Um, well, and they do. Like, uh, just an example of their their shaky authority claims, you will hardly mm-hmm. hear a Mormon missionary. So if you bring up Bruce Armakonki to a Mormon missionary, an active one today, they will almost always have never seen one embrace Bruce Armakonki. And he was an apostle of the church, a recent one too, not even an old one, like a recent apostle. They almost always go, Bruce Armakonki. Like they they do not respect him. He's conservative. He was trying to defend and solidify Mormon doctrine when they didn't want it to be solidified. The Mormon church has constantly been changing doctrine and is planning to do big doctrinal change like now uh, on homosexuality. And so uh, they do not want conservatives in the church until... um, until they make doctrinal changes, and then they want everyone to be conservative. Now this is the new truth, so you all got to hold to it. But it's when they're trying to make a change, they don't want anybody to be conservative. And so they hate 
on Bruce Samarkonky. They hate on Brigham Young, you know, the big guy who who built the college they all get free admission to, right? Like they hate on him because of his stances on polygamy, which <laughs> are pretty strong, right? And they don't hold to those anymore. And they they hate on uh, previous presidents who were big anti-blacks, and they changed their position on blacks being in the priesthood in 1970. So they hate on prior presidents. So it's not a secret that they are. Um, a changing church that really should not be trusted, even to Mormons. So we've established they do set themselves up as the authority, but then now we've established they totally change themselves. So you probably have other examples, Theodore, of them contradicting themselves. Oh, of course. <laughs> so we got prophets disagreeing with prophets. So I, I've mentioned maybe one or two of these in a previous video, but. So Brigham Young said members should be proud to be called Mormons. Apostle McConkie titled his encyclopedic book, uh, Mormon Doctrine. President Hinckley said the name Mormon is totally honorable. The LDS Church named their own choir, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And then the current uh, president, uh, uh, President Nelson, comes along and declares forcefully that using the nickname Mormon is a major, major victory for Satan. Um, he says, quote, we are disregarding all the Savior, Savior did for us, even his atonement, end quote. Um, and then Brigham Young taught, uh, quote, I advanced a doctrine with regard to Adam being our father and God. It is one of the most glorious revealments of the economy of heaven. When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, with him. He helped to make and organize this world. He is Michael the Archangel, the Ancient of Days, about whom holy men have written and spoken. He is our Father and our God. But in 1976, Spencer W. Kimball, president, um, said, quote, We warn you against the dissemination of doctrines which are taught by some of the general authorities of past generations. Such, for instance, is the Adam-God theory. We denounce that theory and hope everyone will, will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine. Um, yeah. So what is a faithful uh, Mormon to do right now, right? When you have contradictions like this, then it goes to every, for every institution. The problem it arises is not just that it makes you question the authority of the institution. Of course it does. But it also makes you wonder what true doctrine is if true doctrine is given orally and not via the scripture. So if you aren't looking to Doctrines and Covenants, if you aren't looking to the Book of Mormon, uh, or if you're a real Christian, if you're not looking to Scripture of the Bible um, for truth, and instead you're looking to an institution, how are you to know when that institution is currently right or when it's going to be changed in 60 years? Like you just described, Theodore, if you were around in Brigham Young's presidency, you would have thought that that Adam was our God, Michael the Archangel, um, and, and you would have been righteously in line with the Church's doctrine. But 50 years later, you could still be alive, and the president would say, um, it's a damnable lie, like they did. And so you never know if any of the teaching of the institution is actually true or not. I think I should quickly bring up that LGBT policy that uh -huh. they changed in three and a half years. Three. Okay. Wow. Yeah, you know our yeah. Mormon... <laughs> Mormon commenters were incensed. Oh my gosh. Like the biggest problem they had with her David Alexander interview, besides being mean, um, was bringing up, oh, yeah. was you bringing up that LGBTQ doctrine. Um, well, I mean, I think he brought up baptism. Yeah, he brought it up. But then that's when I thought, okay, well, the Mormon church banned baptisms for blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, 
Um, yeah, so in November 2015, and again, this is, we've already established the authority that Mormon leadership claims for itself. Mm -hmm. So in November 2015, the prophet was inspired by the Lord, and each member of the quorum felt a spiritual confirmation during that sacred moment. The church banned baptisms for LGBT parents and children and utilized the label apostate. But then in April 2019, three and a half years later, the church leaders claim after having prayed, they understood the will of God uh, had changed to now allow baptisms and recant the apostate label. And to be specific here, just because our commenters wanted to be very specific, the ban was on same-sex couples, so homosexuals. Um, they would adopt children or have children from other marriages, and they want the child baptized in their name. Because the way Mormon baptism works is that if you're going to make it to the celestial level of heaven, you're going to be able to keep your kids uh, under you, and therefore... Um, this child would be sealed to you in heaven and he would have two dads which is not mormon doctrine and so they were they were uh, advising against strongly advising against because i think they officially don't ban it um, but to our knowledge nobody was allowed to baptize so it was a ban just they didn't use the word ban uh the children of same-sex couples because they weren't actually with their true mother and father they were with their mom and fake mom or dad and fake dad or maybe two fake dads so they were not allowed um to be baptized until 2019 which now they're like nah it's fine mm -hmm. and again they removed the word apostate for homosexuals which is probably posturing again there's these are theories so you never know until they actually do it but the theory is that they're probably going to um unaposticize homosexuals meaning that it's just fine to be gay in Mormonism, which I don't know how they're going to work that, um, but frankly, how are they ever going to work the whole banning of polygamy thing? And they did anyway, so I think they can just say it and hope people go along. But just another example of them changing super recently, right? 2019. Yeah. And some of the changes are wild, you know, for Christian friends that may be watching this, it will be like one pastor or like mega church leader or like the Pope saying one day, yeah, God is not Trinitarian. We're now going to say it's Unitarian. Or then the next pope says, no, just kidding, it's actually Trinitarian. Right, it's flipping, flipping back and forth between these statements, same with allowing the priesthood to African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And now this, oh my goodness, the changes are always ongoing. Well, you never know if you're actually standing on truth or not. If you trust in the institution rather than the word of God. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, the Trinity with Mormons the idea of God has kind of changed as well like this standard not only do the prophets not agree with prophets but some of the standard works don't agree with standard works being the doctrine and covenants um, because uh, nowadays it's the book of Mormon standard work and then doctrine and covenants those are later revelations mm -hmm. um, which um, conflict Right, like you said, on the Trinity, because the Book of Mormon isn't necessarily anti-Trinitarian, um, but the Doctrines and Covenants is. It gets more into classic Mormon theology. And so um, 
Mormons really have it bad because they don't have the word of God to rely on. They rely on the word of men, which is the Book of Mormon is not the word of God, nor is doctrines and covenants. And so um, not only are they idolizing an institution, they're also idolizing the words of men written down. And now it's better it's better to try to take written words as an authority over ever-changing oral tradition because oral tradition can change at the whim of the wind, um, whereas at least what's written down won't change from what's written down. Uh, but because it's from men, it is flawed. Whereas if you rest in the Bible, the Bible is not for men, and therefore is not flawed. So our call to Mormons then is not to hold to Mormon literature instead of the teaching of the prophets. Instead, it's to repent and turn to the true God, the true triune God of Jesus Christ. Put all your faith in him and stop uh, making excuses for your institution because the the way we've all seen it, we've seen it in this podcast, we see it in our lives, when you challenge a Mormon on the validity of the um, institution they worship, they say, um, they, they revert back to their training is, and I think it's a pretty common way for them to defend, is just to say, I believe that that I have a burning in my bosom that the Book of Mormon is true and that the LDS church is his true church. Okay, you know, like, you just you just repeated your like mantra, right? Like you didn't actually defend the fact that the church has contradicted itself, that it's not a trustworthy church. You just say that it is and walk away. Instead of doing that, which is a logical contradiction, it pushes you further into sin. It's that whole, I just built this idol and it is God, whether or not I made it myself and I totally know it's not a God. Um, you, you are now knowingly propping up lies. And there's an old, it's not a Christian saying, but there's an old saying that says, live not by lies because it will make you go insane. And so you you further your sin by doubling down on worship of your institution when you know it is not trustworthy. And don't take it from us, just you know, because we're calling out these things. Look at these changes yourself as a Mormon and ask, why have these changes happened? Is it significant? Does this put into question the authority of my church, the Mormon church? And if so, what can I turn to that is the ultimate authority on truth and reality that would, we would say is the word of God, which is the Bible, not the Book of Mormon or the Covenants and Doctrines or any other teaching from any apostle, but rather what Jesus himself said even to the Pharisees, what God has given to you. You know the quote better from Matthew. Um, you add traditions of men to what God has already given to you. Uh, it's a quote from Isaiah, actually. It says... Um... I speak rightly about you when I say you teach um, the teachings of man as commands and disregard the commands of God. Which God has had given to you. So meaning Jesus acknowledged that God had spoken to these people and you could refer to what God had said. Likewise, we call Mormons to look to what God has said and not to what humans have um, said. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Paul uh, like argued from the scriptures and the Bereans in Acts, they checked with the scriptures to check to make sure what Paul and uh, Silas were saying was true. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's one main uh, doctrine or that we should have is check with the scriptures. Because um, also God says His word is enduring, mm -hmm. which means we can go check back with what God has previously said. God will never. Let his word just completely corrupt or run away from the earth or whatever. Um, do you want me to mention anything else? Or only, the... only if you have it. So um, we have 
contradictions. We've talked about a couple. If you have other fun contradictions, you can put them in. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I got one or two more. Sure. Lay them out. So this one uh, perturbs me a little bit. So we got the book of Jacob, which is in the standard works of Mormonism. Uh, Jacob chapter 2, 29 to 30. If I, if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people to practice polygamy. Otherwise, they, will, they shall hearken unto these things, um, i.e. the commandment to be married to one wife. Um, from Jacob 2, verse 30, and chapter 3, verse 5. So basically, um, Book of Mormon is saying, no, polygamy is not a thing. But if it ever were to be a thing, it would be to raise up seed. Now, Doctrine and Covenants uh, 132 says you need to marry at least one wife officially within the Mormon church in order to be exalted to godhood and escape um, basically an eternity of just being an angel. Um, and then, so this one I had to find in Doctrine and Covenants section C1 on marriage. This is the 1835 edition because uh, I think they either took it out or changed the section later on. Mm -hmm. But um, it also seems to, it's, yeah, it denounces polygamy, but seemingly due to public pressure and reluctantly. It says, Inasmuch as this Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife. So, basically, God's revelation is caving to blood pressure. Right. Well, I mean, it's pretty um, pretty obvious when the Republican Party ran in 1860 against the two greatest evils, the United States slavery and polygamy, um, and uh, contingent on becoming a state, Utah needed to get outlaw polygamy, and then they did, and at the same time, the Mormon Church also said, oh yeah, polygamy is now not required and banned. Um, I, obviously, it was for political reasons. It happened at the same time that they became a state. Convenient and this do you want me to do one or two more? I think one of these I already mentioned in a previous video. Okay, give me one Maybe more then. Just... Okay, I'll leave that one up. Um, so, on September 22 and 23, in 1832, a revelation was given to Joseph Smith that his generation would not pass away before a temple is actually built and a cloud of glo God's glory rests upon it and his glory fills the temple. Doctrine and Covenants 84. Uh, so Mormons like the generational middle-aged Mormon with whom I've also been com communicating for about a month. Um, it's okay with the idea of prophets not getting things right because they're human. Um, and then other Mormons would say that generation, does, generation doesn't actually mean generation, but it is actually literally how the other Mormon leaders interpreted it for over a hundred years. So you would have to say that um, the following leaders were falsely teaching um, for over 100 years, and that would be Heber C. Kimball, Elias Smith, George A. Smith, George Q. Cannon, Orson Pratt, Joseph Fielding Smith, until finally, after 140 years, Joseph Fielding Smith admitted this was a false, futile hope fostered by the church that would not be fulfilled. Yeah, and, and that is a fundamental problem with trusting institutions over, over God because 
Um, while we can falsely understand the word of God, there is still truth to it. So there have been hundreds of different prophecies and, and theories around how the book of Revelation pans out, and they've all been wrong because here we are still today. Um, however, God's truth is something. So when the, when the end comes and he shows us exactly what Revelation meant, he'll be proven true. It's not like mm-hmm. he'll be like, oh, yeah, 19 was a total red herring. Like, <laughs> that thing is false. Right? He'll, he'll explain exactly what it means. Whereas people, uh, if, if you put your trust in an institution and then we have a wrong belief about a prophecy, you've just cemented the, the wrong belief about the prophecy. So like you just described with the Mormons, they'll have a bad prophecy. But imagine the prophecy was from God, from the Joseph Smith, uh, this generation will pass away until this temple is filled with the glory of God. Now the institution wrongly interprets it. So if it didn't mean this generation, it meant some other spiritual generation. Um, the church doubled down on it, meaning this literal generation. And so because you've, you've given authority to this institution to interpret God's word, you end up with mistakes like that, where they they authoritatively teach false doctrine and make the word of God void. So, it should be obvious that that the benefit that Protestants and other institutions like the Protestant Church get from not saying we are the ultimate authority is that we can be wrong, right? So when I say I think the Book of Revelation is going to happen in a premillennial fashion, and then blammo, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't invalidate the word of God because I am not an authority on, I'm not the final authority on what revelation means, right? Like God's word isn't false just because I think it was going to happen some way and it wasn't. So there we go. That Mormon church absolutely establishes its authority and Mormon missionaries still today proclaim the benefits of his authority. Meanwhile, it breaks its own authority, its own rules, its own doctrine all the time, which forces those who adhere to it being authoritative to make excuses for it, to on one hand call it authoritative and the other hand call it not authoritative, um, and generally to double down on idolatry. Um, We call anybody that's stuck in that kind of idolatry of the LDS church to leave. And I'm so so sorry. I forgot to mention this when I was mentioning polygamy because it was not in my notes. Um, but the reason why I emphasized Jacob chapter 2, 29 to 30, which is polygamy, if at all, is com- if it is ever commanded, and obviously the, the Bible denounces it, God never says, you're into polygamy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the reason why I was emphasizing that is because the Mormon church, even officially on its website, acknowledges um, that Joseph Smith, uh, was a polygamist, had many wives, and yet, um, and this genera- generational Mormon, middle-aged Mormon I've been talking with, says he would think Joseph Smith probably had 24 wives. And that's on the lower, <laughs> um, that's a lower estimation than most people have. But nonetheless, the Mormon church officially acknowledges that he probably potentially had two or three up to two or three children with his plural wives that is absolutely not raising up seed unto god <laughs> right 24 two times three, right point zero one six is that the ratio there yeah wow so i just want to mention that he had more no. wives than muhammad and muhammad had more children <laughs> than this guy amazing yeah So lots of failures in the Mormon church for multiple reasons. They are not a church of Jesus Christ as much as they bought the domain to say so. They are a false church of of man. Um, But again, 
it, it even applies to church, churches, quote unquote, who use the Bible as their standard. It, let's flip over to Roman Catholicism. We all know this is kind of one of our many passion projects here at Bound Cause, especially Sebastian's passion project. Um, so Sebastian, why don't you take it away? How does the Roman Catholic Church, a traditionally Christian church, Mormon church is traditionally non-Christian, right? Traditionally identified as a cult, as it is. Roman Catholic Church, um, even elders at my own church think that it's a true Christian institution. So clearly, which I disagree with, um, but they, they were a Christian at some point. And so let's show what idolatry of an institution can do to an even formerly Christian church like the Roman Catholics. Sure. Please refer to our past episodes to see exactly why we argue that the Catholic Church has gone astray mm -hmm. from the gospel, how to get true peace with God, how they have gone astray from that teaching. We're not going to go exactly over that. We're going to over, as you said, Michael, how they have built themselves up in a podium so high that now that actually might backfire on them and cause all believing Catholics to hate their papacy mm -hmm. because Pope Francis is not your typical Pope. In Catholicism, they have this idea of the papacy in which he is called the Vicar of Christ. He is called infallible when he speaks from the chair of Peter, which yeah. I was reminded is like, oh, wow, just like Mormonism, when the Holy Spirit get, is in him, he's going to speak truth. But if he's not in the presence of the Holy Spirit and don't count it really, that's yeah. a story. It's just yeah. an excuse to say, like, when he's wrong, he's wrong. And when he's right, he's right. Well, yeah, that's kind of what everybody is. You don't have to be the Pope to, to be that. Right. <laughs> so the problem with Catholicism, just like Mormonism, is popes have said contradictory things to, against one another in, well, just within this lifetime when the previous Pope, Pope Benedict XVI, was alive with Pope Francis, mm -hmm. both two popes. I don't think you lose your papacy, you just like step down from the chair of Peter, but right. you're still Pope. And they believed very, very different things. Pope Francis is a liberation theologian, courtesy of Peru to the world, unfortunately, liberation <laughs> theology. And Benedict XVI was a conservative Catholic. He tried to hold the church steady and people hated him for that. Right. Wow, just like, wow, look at this, just like this Mormonism when the changes were happening and they hate, what was this guy? Bruce? Yeah, Bruce Armaconkey. Yeah. Yes. Okay, replace that guy with Pope Benedict XVI. That's pretty much the same, yeah. same thing. Now, I want you, please, Michael, to read this statement on papal infallibility. Whoa. This handy, nice, dandy yeah. piece of paper. This is to establish, it's not just Sebastian saying, it's not just me or Theodore saying that the Catholics claim to be an idol, right? I'm going to read their own doctrine. It's called Papal Infallibility from Vatican Council, um, Session 4 from 1870. We teach and define that it is a dogma divinely revealed. So this is code for it is God-given truth that anybody who denies this is, is not a Christian. Continuing. That the Roman pontiff, the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra from the chair, that is when in discharge of the office of pastor and doctor of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church, by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed that his church should be endowed in defining doctrine regarding faith or morals and that therefore such definitions of the roman pontiff are of themselves and not from the consent of the church irreformable so then should anyone which god forbid have the temerity to reject this definition of ours let him be anathema anathema meaning going to hell 
yeah, cut off from the church. Cut off. It's, it's used by Paul and Galatians to say that those who mix the Judaizers, those who mix work and faith, ironically, very <laughs> ironic actually, um, that they are the ones cut off from the gospel. They're fallen from grace. That's what anathema means: fallen from God. Indeed. Thank you for reading. I'll read one more. This is again from this is from official Catholic teaching. It's actually even on their website. It's the earliest papal bull that you can find. It's called Unam Sanctum from 1302. Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for the sal for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Okay. So you have to believe in Jesus, you have to believe God is triune, etc., etc. And also you have to be subject to the Roman pontiff. So the stakes are high. You have to look to the Pope and be a subject to the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church specifically in order to be saved. They would... Go ahead. Yeah. And remember that 1871, in case you were mixed up by the weird 1870 language, it said that any official teaching of the Pope, even if the rest of the church disagrees with it, is irreformable, meaning it is an unchanging doctrine from God. It will never change. It will never develop. It is truth from the words of the Pope. So when Roman Catholics inevitably, because they do, because they get caught and they want to run, when they inevitably run from the Pope's stances or the church's stances, on one hand, they're like, amen, so glad we have the Pope and the and the church because the Bible is so confusing, you know, it's so confusing, I don't understand English, I don't understand Greek, I'm so glad I have an Italian Latin speaking Pope to tell me the truth, and then the Pope goes, you know, uh-oh, Jesus was a woman. And they're like, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, was he really saying it ex cathedra? I don't know. Like, that's not what the, the, the church fathers talked about. And they make a hundred other excuses. You have to point them back to the fact that, first of all, on one hand, they claim church infallibility, like, like all the time, especially apologists. And so they cannot run away from the official church teaching that the Pope is the head of the church. Right. So a constant phrase that I hear apologists like Trent Horn and Catholic Answers say, they're not the same, they're I think, in fact, they dislike each other, but these Catholic apologists, they state that this the Catholic faith holds on to the constant faith and teaching from the early church, meaning whatever Peter believed and taught 2,000 years ago is what the papacy and the Catholic church teaches today. Mm -hmm. Okay, the problem with that is that that's not true. Let's take a look at an example. Part of what prompted this episode too, and theater and I worked this out Combining Mormonism and the papacy, what a great, what a great mixture, what a great. Yeah, Pope's been on a roll, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he and he doubled, he doubled down on this. You know, this this from Crux now. I, for the record, I like the Crux news channel on YouTube. I listen to it every once in a while. You know, to keep up Catholic, with Catholicism. Catholic news. Mm -hmm. Yep, with John Allen, great host. A little bit strange every once in a while, but he gets he has sources straight from the papacy. I don't know how he does this but he gets news out before they even release officially by the Vatican. Anywho, the Pope in Portugal, he was speaking to a bunch of Jesuits. He, for context, he's Argentinian. He is a, he's in the Jesuit tradition, which are flaming liberals now. They used to not be back during the Counter-Reformation. Mm -hmm. And they used to have a statement. I mean, at least Ignatius of Loyola said this, that um, if I'm, I'm paraphrasing, if I'm looking at something, and it's white. But if the Pope says that it is black, I will say that it is black. Okay. That's where the Jesuits were back in the day. How things have changed. Okay. So this is the Pope speaking 
in Portugal, someone asked him about the state of Catholicism in the U.S. Pretty much, Pope gives Catholicism in the U.S. a thumbs down. Says they're ultra-conservative, they're holding on to strange things, and they are not in the rights of history. He doesn't pretty much say that. He explicitly says that. Like He doesn't just allude to it. He says... The people in the United States are backwards thinking and they're holding to old beliefs. They have lost the root of the church and have no longer the sap of the Holy Spirit. Uh, yep. So here, could you start here, Michael, please? This is again from cruxnow.com. Sure. In, in his response, again, Francis is talking to Jesuits. Uh, Francis said, you've seen that in the United States, the situation is not easy. There's a very strong reactionary attitude. This attitude is organized and shapes the way people belong, even emotionally, he said, and cautioned against what he calls indietrismo, meaning being backward-looking, being you know, a Neanderthal, essentially, saying that this attitude is useless, and we need to understand that there is an appropriate evolution in the understanding of the matter and faith and morals, which, if you know your Catholic terms, the Catholic Church and the Pope specifically are infallible on matters of faith and morals. So what he's telling you is that uh, there's an appropriate evolution, meaning I am going to change what previous church doctrine and previous posts have taught about specifically what I'm allowed to have authority about, which is faith and morals. And he goes on to, to double confirm. He says, doctrine, so the, the, the teaching of God himself, right, dogma, also progresses, expands, and consolidates with time and becomes firmer, but is always progressing. Change develops from the roots upward, growing in accord with these three criteria, Francis said. And at the very end, this we're, we're really killing all these lines from Francis. He says, the view of church doctrine as monolithic is erroneous, Francis said, saying some people opt out from this process of change and understanding, and they go backward. When you go backward, you form something closed, disconnected from the roots of the church, and you lose the sap of revelation, he said, insisting that if a healthy change is not embraced, you go backward, and then you take on criteria for change other than those our faith gives for growth and change. Uh, yep. And he, he explicit, explicitly says, again, referring to the situation in the United States and the climate of closure among some American Catholics. The Pope said this climate is present in some areas, and when this is the case, you can lose the true tradition and turn to ideologies for support. And then this is also an example to show a direct change. Unless you want to comment, Michael, on what we just read here. Well, it, just in summary, in case you missed it again, it's like being translated from, from Spanish or Latin or whatever. Or Portuguese, speaking. yeah. Portuguese, yeah. Um, the, the Pope is saying that he he is changing. So for all the Catholics that are saying he is not changing matters of faith and morals, that he himself might be a flaming liberal, but he's not changing the official positions of the church. He has changed the official catechism, which is the teaching of the church. And he is expressly saying that I am teaching, I'm evolving on faith and morals, his specific doctrine he's allowed to change his pope and so when you don't come with me you american catholics who are out there trying to defend the, the catholic church you go backward and you have higher criteria for changing doctrine than the true church does and that i am changing true church tradition and you are the one being left behind um so he is saying with with no inexplicit terms he's trying to be explicit as possible that those who are trying to say that he doesn't have the authority to do the things that he's doing are wrong and that he is officially changing church doctrine on um status of homosexuals absolutely status of atheists 
the status of other churches. He has brought in the Eastern Orthodox Church and Protestants and Muslims, whoever, Muslims, Jewish people. Like we, we just read in the very beginning of the Catholic section that anybody who is not under the authority of the Roman pontiff is anathema. Uh-huh. Muslims aren't under the authority of the Pope last time I checked, but he said, yeah, whatever, they're going to heaven. So he is just disregarding the old doctrine of the Catholic Church, which at least should tell you that the church is not infallible. Because here's the church yeah. saying two different things. So somebody in the church is, is fallible, right? Somebody was mistaken. Yes. And I have a great example on a different Pope who he said about warfare and Muslims. But first, could you please read? As I'm pretty sure this is from the same conference. He yeah. talks about nuclear weapons and, you know, that the topics that the, that are discussed. Wait, can you read this, please? S- somebody slipped this guy some extra coffee because he <laughs> he wasn't holding anything back at this this conference. He said, "Let us get to specifics. Today, it is a sin to possess atomic bombs." Semicolon. The death penalty is a sin. You cannot employ it. But it was not so before. So, in case anybody, I'm just taking a pause here. In case anybody is confused. Um, he is telling you that it is currently a sin to be to, to believe in the death penalty or to have atomic bombs, but that that is a change. He's like bringing the big red flag out and waving it. You know, he's he's, <laughs> he's like a serial adulterer on the first date, and he's like, "Yeah, I do that, and it's a problem." Anyway, so he's like, "Yeah, this is a total change. I am I am changing things the Catholic Church used to believe." And then he he goes on. He says, "As for slavery, some pontiffs before me tolerated it, but things are different today. So you change, you change, but with the criteria just mentioned." I like to use the word upward, an upward image that is utanis, whatever, some big Latin phrase, gosh. <laughs> Always on this path, starting from the root with sap that flows up and up. And that is why change is necessary, because it's, it's good. Nice. People changing always think it's good, of course. Yep. Okay. Again, big thing. It is a sin to carry out the death penalty. It is a sin to possess atomic bombs. Okay. Well, the Bible didn't speak on atomic bombs because, you know, it was written back during the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the death penalty is sanctioned by God in the Old Testament. Am I wrong on that? Of course, it's, it's not only sanctioned, it's, it's, it's necessitated in some cases. So it is sanctioned for some things where people have the, the decision on whether or not to bring the charges. But specifically, the Lord says, you don't have a decision. You have to employ the death penalty um, for murder and for... Um, a, uh, Apostasy, what's it called? Uh, not necessarily the evangelism of false beliefs. I'm forgetting the word for it. But a, a promoting false gods amongst Israel, you have to employ the death penalty. It's a command from God, not just sanctioned. Okay, excellent. On that same note, speaking of other gods too, modern Catholicism does say that you, Muslims can be saved because they worship the one true God. It is their only anathema if they willingly intentionally reject the trinity like if you're not informed of the trinity it's at least i'm summarizing from the catechism that's okay you're going to be probably a very insignificant christian in heaven they would argue especially this pope but if you willingly understand the trinity and knowingly reject it then you're going to hell yeah okay okay with that in mind and what we just read from the pope especially on death penalty sin nuclear weapons and change and all that michael could you please read this statement from pope Urban II, this is the Pope that called for the crusade, okay? First crusade, this is going to be good. 
This land which you inhabit, shut in at all sides by the sea and surrounded by the mountain peaks, is too narrow for your large population, nor does it abound in wealth, and it furnishes scarcely food enough for its cultivators. Hence, it is that you murder one another, that you wage war, and that frequently you perish by mutual wounds. Let therefore hatred depart from among you, let your quarrels end, let wars cease, let all dissensions and controversies slumber. Enter upon the road to the holy sepulchre. Wrest that land from the wicked race, and subject it to yourselves. God has conferred upon you, above all nations, great glory and arms. Accordingly, undertake this journey for the remission of your sins, with the assurance of the imperishable glory of the kingdom of heaven. Nice. Calling for the crusade. Yes. And then, part of what happened in the room was after he called it, said these words, everyone started yelling, Deus will, Deus will, God wills it, God wills it. And then... When the Venerable Pontiff heard that, he said, Most beloved brethren, today is manifest in you what the Lord says in the Gospel, where two or three are gathered together in my name. <laughs> there am I in the midst of them. Unless the Lord God had been present in your spirits, all of you would not have uttered the same cry. For although the cry issued from numerous mouths, yet the origin of the cry was one. Therefore I say to you that God, who implanted this in your breasts, has drawn it forth from you. Let this then be your war cry in combat because this word is given to you by God. When an armed attack is made upon the enemy, let this one cry be raised by all the soldiers of God. It is the will of God. It is the will of God. Okay? That is a pope calling for the crusade. What does Pope Francis said in another statement in talking about war? Every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and humanity which merits him an unequivocal condemnation, said Pope Francis. Well, I mean, we don't even need to dig into the archives, you know, because there are archives and archives and archives of popes contradicting each other. Um, they all ha have to swear against Pope Honorius I, an old heretic pope, that they all agree was pope and then was a heretic when they get inaugurated um, from 625 to 638. So, like, we don't even have to get into those weird scenarios that really, does anybody today care about Pope Honorius I? No. Uh, we do care about the current Pope, and the current Pope is like shooting everybody. He's like, you suck, and that Pope sucks, and you all suck, and I'm changing everything. So we don't even have to dig into the archives. You know, it used to be that us poor Protestant apologists would have to dig back into old medieval manuscripts that nobody cared about to prove that the Catholic Church had changed, you know, and they're not different than they used to be. Um, but not only Vatican II, uh, the recent church council that changed a ton of stuff, um, but also the current pope are so explicitly changing doctrine, saying they're changing doctrine, that we don't even have to do all that. Like, we don't have to go back to the cadaver synod. We don't have to go back to anything. We just, you, the current pope is saying he's changing things. So, yeah, the, the, the church changes doctrine. It's not the infallible rule of faith because it has fouled, it has failed. Oh, yeah. Okay, that is Michael's cue for me to not talk about these <laughs> things. So, but I remember back when we started this podcast, we did great, great research on all these weird things that the papacy had done. At the time, there were three popes. Time, one pope was put on trial. His dead body was put on trial and, and called a heretic and schismatic and, you know, all the insults that you can think of by another pope. And then the body was thrown in the river after its papal ring was cut off from his from his finger, the, the corpse. The body was rescued and put him back on. So now you're right. All we have to do is just let's see what the Pope said yesterday. And, <laughs> and I'm telling you, look me in the eyes. <laughs> We're changing. Yes. Mm -hmm. But in all seriousness, as much as I like to poke fun 
I do want to point to, for example, something that has happened in comes up a lot too in what books this is a completely more serious topic on what books make up the Bible. The Catholic Church would say that without us, you wouldn't be able to know what the Bible includes, which is kind of silly because the Bible would have existed without a church since God is the one who wrote the books, authored, sorry, no, wrote, authored the books yeah. to I'm exist. Gonna, I'm going to do the Spider-Man thing where the Spider-Mans are pointing at each other in the meme and I'm going to say, you wouldn't have the Bible if not for us because we're Christians and you're not, you know, like kind of like, it's just <laughs> such a stupid argument because it's basically just saying we're Christians and you're not. I mean, we come from the exact same church history. So like you actually, you false apostate church wouldn't have the Bible except for us. Like that's not a productive means of argument. Right, right. And on... Part of the argument now between Catholics and and Protestants is that what books actually include are inclu- should be included in the Bible. There's agreement in the New Testament, which ironically took a while to form and come to come together to be all accepted together by the church community. But with the Old Testament, there's this section called the Apocrypha, and I just want to mention it because this is critical. A pope and also a cardinal stated that books of the Apocrypha were not part of the Bible. The Council of Trent includes these extra books as part of the Old Testament. Pope Gregory the Great, who was a great writer, said in regarding the Apocrypha, we're not acting irregularly if from the books, though not canonical, yet brought out for the edification of the church, we bring forth testimony. He's echoing what other people said before him. These extra books that some people think are inspired scripture, but I don't, we still think are useful for teaching and edification of the church. Cardinal Cayetan, the man who interviewed Martin Luther, would also say the same uh, thing on the books that are should be and should not be included in the in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So just to say that on a more serious note, because you know, we've been poking a lot of fun on Francis and we could go on. In fact, why don't we do that? Because that was the serious stuff I wanted to get to on top of the cadaver synod. The time there were three popes living at once and all claiming to be the one infallible vicar of Christ in the 1400s. Who do you listen to? No, no, seriously. Like, who would you, which pope, the one in Pisa, the one in Avignon, the one in Rome, would you have listened to for guidance? Because the stakes are high. You need to be subject to the Roman pontiff to be saved. And there's three people, there's three people saying to the Christian world, I am the one true vicar of Christ on earth. Listen to me. The other two are imposters, fake, heathens, heretics, schismatics, etc. And there's even this nice convenient map of Europe in which the countries had to choose. You had to choose who you're going to ally to. France obviously allied with Avignon because it's in France. Would have been strange not to. And the Italians, the English decided with other with the other pope. So who do you have listened to? You say that this man is your source of authority. Which which one of the three? And imagine if the Council of, you know, of Constance would have been a failure. There would have been a fourth pope with Martin V and then they executed Jan, Jan Hus as a, as a side note in that same council. So again, you put, you put this institution, the pope, mm-hmm. in such a big pedestal that they, you're setting, you're pretty much setting it up for failure. The moment they make mistakes, you're proving the system you're false. 
especially when they teach doctrine like Poponarius that no one knows about, but for 400 years he was anathematized by uh, successive popes or even uh, much uh, later popes, the schism in the 1400s, who would you have listened to? Mm -hmm. Who would you have listened to to see where do I get the right teaching from God? And plus all the other developments that have happened since then. Transubstantiation, when it's officially codified in the 1200s, there was this big disagreement in the 800s, 400 years earlier. Is transubstantiation really what happens during the Eucharist, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Or is it a spiritual in, in presence of Christ? That was a big conflict. And the church changed from a spiritual understanding of the real presence of Jesus to a literal presence of Jesus mm -hmm. in the body of the Eucharist. Body and blood of Christ, and a big change. I don't, I won't forget this. Pope Francis, on who can be saved. Remember, you have to be part of the Holy Apostolic Church. On an interview, I mean, it was it was live. You know, I was speaking to a group, large, a large group of people. The Pope said that this atheist father of a child, because he had the child baptized, would be going to heaven. Right. I thought you had to be part of the Holy Apostolic Church in order to be saved. So again, my hope is you can see that change has happened. The Council of Trent called for the constant faith and anathema to all those who reject the holy tradition of the church. The Pope says, if I you am tradition. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, and says, if you look backwards, you're on the wrong side of history. We have to look, oh, he says upwards or I guess forward. Whatever you want to call, whatever you want to call it. So, if you put your hope in this papacy, you're going to be absolutely devastated. I can't imagine what the conservative Catholics are feeling, especially when this pope hates the Latin Mass, Mass in Latin, and also the the way it is carried out. I met with a with a priest to be priest in training who is big and supporter of the Latin Mass, and Pope Francis is not. He almost outright banned it. Right. What do, What do you do then? Do you become a sede vacante? person someone who believes that the papacy is real but it has been occupied by imposters for this amount of time what standard do you use why just give the boot to this pope and not the last one and then the one before right what do you do again we call everyone to go to the one and only unchanging uh, book of truth source of morals and guidance it's not the catechism it is the bible the word of the living god right and and that's what ultimately we should be pushing everybody to when you evangelize the way somebody comes to faith is through the holy spirit so we're not saying that um, the bible is the only way to come to christ however if you want to know truth about god we shouldn't be going to something that's not the bible because the bible is the word of god and everybody else's words are not unless you're quoting the bible and so that's why Protestants have, that's why Christians have this doctrine of sola scriptura. It's Jesus held to the standard, right? The apostles held to the standard. They were adding to scripture in their special time, but they were always consistent with scripture. So they were never changing scripture or going against scripture. They were always consistent with scripture. Whereas Roman Catholic doctrine, LDS doctrine, any other apostate church or, or false religions doctrine goes against scripture. Not only adds to it, it goes 
against it. So we need an unchanging standard of faith, and it cannot be men. It cannot be institutions. And Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses and any other cult-like group out there claim to have the same authority as God. In fact, Trent Horn, famous American Catholic apologist, very conservative, tries to get around the fact that the Bible contradicts the Catholic Church by saying that the Catholic Church is actually more important than the Bible and that the Bible comes from the Catholic Church and therefore is subordinate to it. Eastern Orthodox commentators in our channel have said the same thing. Huge red flag. We've just established why it's such a problem to make a, a an institution your final authority. Um, you are idolizing it. You're putting it above God. And so while Catholics will point the finger and say you're idolizing the Bible, the Bible is God's word. So we cannot idolize God. It is God's word. And so it comes down to, do you believe the Bible is the word of God or not? And if you don't, you, you deny the faith because you are denying the word of God. That's, if, if you have to have a really good explanation for why it's not the word of God and how you can still call yourself a Christian. In the words of famous Kirill Lucaris, patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, since from 1620 to 1638, in his confession, he wrote, We believe the authority of the Holy Scripture to be above the authority of the Church. To be taught by the Holy Spirit is a far different thing from being taught by a man. Mm -hmm. For man may be through ignorance, may, for man may through ignorance err, deceive, and be deceived. But the Word of God neither deceives, nor is deceived, nor can err, and is infallible and has eternal authority famous last words because he was assassinated just a few years later by his own church which hated his beliefs and tried and his attempt to reformation yeah so uh, again theme of the episode has been that you do not want to idolize anything that is not god including institutions the roman catholic church is not god your local church is not god your local pastor or famous preacher is not god and certainly uh, cults like the mormons are not god so when you idolize an institution, it will fail you. The only one you should ever idolize is the Lord God. And in that way, he's not an idol. He is God. You know, an idol is a fake God. God is the real God. And that's why we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been Michael the Man behind the machine. And to my right is Ben. Say something quick, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, wa I wanted to have a, another little conclusion thing. Close it out. All right. So since the Mormon prophets and Roman pontiffs propped up irrevocably by their respective in institutions, have and do lead people astray and propagate incorrect interpretations and teachings, then why would you trust them? Why would you abdicate, submit, and surrender your entire life, mind, time, and desires to them? Uh, because you will be personally held accountable for testing prophets and leaders because God has clearly declared the test uh, rules, the borders, etc. for us in his Bible mm -hmm. that will endure and that does not fade like a flower or whatever. That is a succinct way of closing us out. Thank you, Theodore. And that's why we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael Mayer behind the machine and to my right has been Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And over the airwaves has been Theodore under the PC. Thank you for listening. It's been a longer episode, but it's back to our classic, esoteric, long, long episodes. Uh, if you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. Star audio only, though. If you want to see Theodore's lovely face and my unshaven face and Sebastian's unshaven face, you're going to have to go to YouTube or facebook.com forward slash foundcause and find us there. We're also on Spotify and iTunes and wherever else you might find your podcast where you can put me at three times speed. Can you believe it? I think... 
the earth starts spinning backwards if that happens. Um, so until next time, when we talk about something completely different, I think we're gonna do a reaction video to Catholics or something. Trent Horn? Yeah, yeah. I do, you know, as much as we're picking on Trent Horn, I do think he's one of the better Catholic apologists out there that just mm -hmm. speaks to Catholicism as a whole. Agreed. All right, until next time, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.